Well, thanks, Garth, for those kind words and for the uh, honour of being able to share a few thoughts here with you today. Um, so over 20 years, it's a long time, but it's been 20 great years, David, yeah? And to know the family as well. Um, and in fact, my connection with Pakenham Baptist goes back, I think, about eight years because we started a satellite group or a couple of groups here um, back then, and uh, it's great to be back. Uh, so it's an honour to speak today at this pivot point uh, in life for David and the family in moving from uh, one stage of life to another, one thing to another. Uh, pivot points in life happen in all sorts of ways. Um, might be going to a new school or getting a new job, uh, starting in a new career or a new relationship, or moving to a new place to live, or news from a doctor that's distressing, or a financial difficulty that's frightening, or a relationship breakdown that's wounding. Uh, pivot points happen in all sorts of ways, and they tend to often move us from one thing and one stage of life to another. And so it was for a guy called Isaiah, and I'd like to take us back in time uh, to a day in 739 BC. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet. Uh, his charge was to call the nation of Judah back to God and to tell them of God's salvation through the Messiah. And in that year, uh, he came face to face with his own pivot point in life uh, that opened his eyes to a revelation of God and also the reality of himself. So if you have a Bible, would you open it and come with me to Isaiah chapter 6. And what we'll do this morning is a flyover of the first eight verses in Isaiah chapter 6. So let me set the scene before we dive in. Uh, King Uzziah had ruled Judah uh, for 52 years. And it's possible that Isaiah lived in the king's palace and may even have been related to the king. Uh, and perhaps Isaiah was uh, in his office uh, that day. Uh, just another day at work, <laughs> maybe doing his uh, next sermon, uh, when he hears the sound of footsteps in the hallway coming down. Uh, it's not the usual pace. Uh, there's some urgency to this. Uh, it's the messenger of the king. And as he arrives, he peers through the curtain over the doorway and he tells Isaiah in a hushed voice, the king is dead. Uh, many of us will remember uh, where we were last year when the Queen died. Uh, I remember going to bed that night just before a hearing of her death, and uh, at the time, members of the royal family were rushing to Balmoral uh, Castle in Scotland uh, to be with her. And I thought before I went to, um, to sleep, maybe when I wake up, the Elizabethan, Elizabethan era will be over. And sure enough, the next day, it was. Uh, one era ended and another era was about to begin. And for Isaiah, King Uzziah's death was a pivot point. Uh, it made him sit up, wake up, and look up because in it was a message from God. And so he went to write it all down in chapter 6, in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and, on the train of his, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, the Apostle John, in chapter 12 of his gospel account, gives insight on who Isaiah saw. Uh, he said in John chapter 12, Isaiah saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. So Isaiah's eyes were opened to a vision of God in the pre-incarnate person of Christ. And Isaiah tells us what he sees about Jesus 
And note the contrasts. Uh, Christ is high and exalted, uh, seated on a throne. Uzziah sat on an earthly throne. Christ sits high and exalted on a heavenly throne. Uzziah ruled within geographical boundaries. Uh, Christ rules from the highest position in the universe. No person or thing is greater than him. He is above all things, above all creation, above all nations, above all powers. And Uzziah ruled for 52 years. Christ rules for all time. He is eternal. Uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Isaiah tells us the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. And he also sees the train of his robe filling the temple. Now notice it just didn't sort of cover up a part of the temple, it actually filled the temple. Uh, one author says uh, there was no place that Christ was not. Uh, David, in Psalm 139, uh, details the omnipresence of the Lord. Uh, he wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Uh, where can I flee from your presence? Uh, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. So Isaiah had his eyes opened to the omnipresence of the Lord. And believers in Christ have had their eyes opened to the fact that they are his temple and they are indwelt and filled by his spirit. So Isaiah's eyes were opened to a fresh vision of the greatness of the Lord, but also to his glory. In verse 2, above him were seraphim, uh, each with six wings. Uh, with two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Uh, when I was reading this uh, verse, I thought, what a sight. Yeah, what a sight. Uh, they're all hovering and bowing and worshipping, calling up praises to the Lord. In verse 3, holy Holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I understand from Hebrew scholars that in Hebrew there is no way to actually express the superlative like great, greater and greatest. So um, if you want to say that uh, this piece of land is holier than all others, you need to say the holy of holies. If you want to say a king is better than all other kings, you say king of kings, you know, lord of lords. Another way to express the superlative in Hebrew is to repeat it, holy, holy, holy. Uh, the Lord is holy to a superlative degree. He's not just pure, he is distinctly pure. He's not just um, uh, here with us, he is set apart, he is unique, he is other. And all that he is and does qualifies as holy. And we're told that he is the Lord Almighty. Uh, in his hands, he holds all might and power. Uh, he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Uh, Martin Luther, in his hymn, uh, wrote, Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same. He's the chief one, the big one, the almighty one. He has his hands on everything. And notice that uh, the praise uh, shook the uh, foundations and the doorposts of the temple. I think Isaiah wants us to know just how much in awe he was in the presence of the worship of the Lord. Uh, it was unbounded, unhindered, uh, unlimited, unrestricted praise. Isaiah saw it, he heard it, and, and he felt it. 
But there's more because the temple then filled with smoke. Uh, this was not smoke just from a small log fire. Uh, this was the Shekinah glory of God that came down. Uh, as I would have known about this from the testimony of other people from years past. Uh, remember the cloudy pillar uh, of God's glory that protected the Israelites uh, on the hot days when they were wandering in the desert? And the, uh, the fiery pillar that uh, lit their way at night? That was one example. And, and this revelation of the Lord that Isaiah received gave him a fresh perspective because it also gave him a picture of the reality of himself. In verse 5, he said, Woe to me! I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. It's a turning point for Isaiah uh, in earlier chapters, uh, he had been calling out sin in other people. In chapter 5, verse 8, he said, you know, woe to you who sin. Uh, and then in verses 11, 18, 20, 21, 22, he said, woe to those who sin. He'd been pointing the finger at everyone else. Woe to you and woe to those. Um, don't know about you, but I got caught up in the Medibank data breach um, <laughs> not too long ago. Uh, so... My details are unfortunately on the dark web somewhere and I've been getting a lot of spam calls and spam texts. And I point my fingers at those hackers and I go, what are you? Um, I had a family member who uh, got scammed $14,000 uh, recently by SMS. And I point my finger at those scammers and I go, what are you? Uh, turn the news on and you see you know, news of sexual abuse and theft and fraud and I'm pointing my finger to those people and going, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. We're quick to point the finger. But what does Isaiah now see? In verse 5, he says, woe to me. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. We read the Bible, and the Bible reads us. Our minds tend to think, well, I don't hack, I don't scam, I don't sexually abuse, and so long as I don't do as many bad things as someone else, then I can be okay before God. But therein lies the problem. We're setting our own standards. If we compare ourselves to other people, we'll always find someone who has done something worse than we have. And if I do enough good things and support enough charities and get involved in enough volunteer work, then maybe that offsets all of the bad things that I end up doing. I may not rate myself as an A+, but I'm surely better than those I rate as a D, or maybe on a generous day I might rate them a C minus. But Isaiah's eyes were open to the reality of himself. Uh, God is holy, and we are not. Uh, we are not good by default. Uh, we all do wrong things by default, and that's called sin. And sin separates us from the righteous and holy God, it's a personal and public betrayal of God in what we do, in what we think, and also in who we are, our nature, because by nature and choice, we sin. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, uh, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sin angers God. Uh, he is holy and just, and you can't just turn a blind eye to sin because sin contradicts everything he is. And God has told us in the Bible that the wages of sin is death, physical death and spiritual death. But here's the thing. God hasn't forsaken us 
forever. He has given us the solution for us to be at one with him again. In verse 6, a seraphim took a burning coal from the altar and touched it to Isaiah's mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see, there was hope for a sinner like Isaiah and there is hope for a sinner like you and me. And don't miss this. The hope is not in a burning coal, but in what it stands for. It's the blood of Christ shed on the altar of the cross of Christ that purifies from all sin, for all time, from all unrighteousness. Isaiah trusted in God's provision of cleansing that would one day be fully satisfied in Christ. And those of us who trust the saving work of Christ are pardoned and can stand before the infinitely majestic, holy and righteous God and live. And we are saved to serve. In verse 8, Isaiah heard the voice of the Lord saying, well, whom shall I send and who will go for us? At this pivot point in his life, Isaiah had been presented a vision of the Lord. He saw his reign, his rule, his righteousness, and he had been purified by going to the cross. His guilt was taken away and his sin atoned for. God the Son paid the ultimate price of his own life to reconcile us to God the Father. And though Isaiah could never repay that price, he lived as if he wanted to repay. And so he said, here am I, send me. And it had all began with just a pivot point. What pivot points are in your life and mine right now? What does the Lord want you to see? Where might the Lord want you to serve? Uh, for David, it's a pivot to a new life, a new thing in church ministry. Uh, what could it be for you and me today?